Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. This one was a whopper for me. It got me thinking about a lot of the challenges in healthcare, most of which are far beyond my expertise. Unfortunately, I did most of my thinking in the editing, not while I had my guest in front of me. So I'm hoping we might be able to do this again um, and go a little bit deeper on some of the questions that have come up. Or I may write something for LinkedIn or put on a Substack thread and see what kind of response it gets. In any case, let's dive into my conversation with Paul Sims. Paul Sims is apparently a noisy introvert, according to LinkedIn. (laughs) But he also happens to be the chief executive at Impatient Health. Paul, welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. Very happy to be here. Thank you so much for this invitation. Looks like it's going to be fun. Yeah, and sure it will be. So first of all, tell us a little bit about Impatient Health. What are you all doing over there? Oh, we're having a lot of fun. My background is running the industries. And when I say industry, I mean kind of pharma, life sciences, industry's biggest events. Um, I did that for 17 years. Probably shouldn't have been doing that because I didn't love it. Um, but it got me a, a very big network, right? So, so I, I know a lot of people, which is, which is great. Uh, and it also got me a kind of independent position, which I, which I really appreciated as well. And we were acquired by Reuters, which was, you know, a nice tap on the head. But uh, I wanted to, I really wanted to work with fewer people who are really moving the needle. Um, and, you know, working with big events was kind of the opposite of that. So I, I was very keen to, um, to, you know, freedom for me was choice. I wanted to, to, to get out of talking about stuff and start doing stuff. And I wanted to do it with the people who I thought were were, were actually pushing the boundaries, dissatisfied with the status quo. And when I say having a lot of fun, that is actually true. So I guess you could say I've kind of created a bit of a consultancy. I hate using the word consultancy, but um, that is effectively uh, a sort of mixture of a consultancy and think tank, I guess you could say. Um, I'm trying to find new ways of doing things. I'm trying to kind of serve the more ambitious and creative segments of our uh, industry. Uh, and they do exist, <laughs> and uh, I'm trying to make a difference uh, in interesting ways. So having great fun. Nice. So we're going to talk about the creativity part. I found mm. you through a post on LinkedIn. I think someone in my network liked a post that you did about agility, which we're going to talk about later on in the podcast. But that got me digging into your blog, which uh, as a previous guest on this podcast would call tactfully polarizing. Like. Your blog is very well written. Well, I'll take that as a compliment. No one's ever described me as tactful before, so thank you. Uh, But there's definitely a point of view around innovation in pharma. So first of all, what are some of those challenges you see around innovation? Innovation, um, a much used word, um, uh, overused word. Um, We are in a world of uncertainty. I would say we were obviously all very familiar with the last couple of years of COVID, et cetera. But, you know, as soon as we emerge from COVID, there's war in Eastern Europe. And as soon as we emerge from that, there'll be something else around the next corner. And I'm afraid to say there is no such thing as a new normal. It's new normals. Uh, it's the plural. It's it's continuous. There's not this kind of beautiful plateau where we're going to be able to relax. Sorry to burst everyone's bubble, but it's just 
not going to happen. So what does that mean? It means we have to figure out how to run our businesses successfully according to an unstable, unfamiliar world. We've been optimizing our companies pretty much over the last 50 years for a world that we understood, you know, we, we all knew what tomorrow would look like. I would say we, we don't know that anymore. So I think that we need to adopt the strategies that um, startups tend to look at or, or people in, in sort of uh, very uh, technology-focused areas, which, which have to be fairly adaptable, shall we say. I think the uh, Darwin quote of uh, that which, not, you know, not, not that which is strongest, but which is most adaptable will be the success going forward. Another overused phrase, but perhaps appropriate for the first time now. And... Um, that brings us to that word agility that you mentioned already. Um, agility is a bit of a buzzword. I would say we've been screwing up agility for the last five years or so. Um, but agility is ultimately a management system. It's a way of operating in an uncertain world. And it differs from a more traditional management system. It's just a new set of rules, basically. And I think that if you want to be both innovative and successful, going forward, um, you have to be able to do this well. And that means undoing some things that we're doing at the moment, as well as learning how to do a few, a few things for the first time. Yeah, I want to talk about what some of those things are. Since you mentioned this world of uncertainty, um, a friend of mine mentioned this book to me. And when he first mentioned it, I go, oh, yeah, I'm going to jump right on that. But then I saw a Twitter post about it in the following week. So I started reading it. It's called The End of the World is Just the Beginning. <laughs> oh, <okay>. And <laughs> as cheerful as that sounds, it's written, it's a very easy read. It's not short, um, but it's written in a style that's not too academic. Let's put it that way, where um, the author, and I won't go into too much detail, analyzes the history of it, commerce and civilizations, how they sprung up and based a lot on geography, and then he goes into demography and what that means for everyone. Um, and then it's looking at the future because you can kind of predict from demographics what's what's coming. And, you know, making the point that the last 50 or 70 years you know, is sort of unprecedented. We live in clearly the most ridiculous part of human history. And it's, it has set our expectations in a way that according to him, isn't going to sustain. So more uncertainty to come. Sounds, so, sounds, sounds like a good reader. It is. It, I, I don't recommend books very often, but I think this one is, uh, it's interesting. Um, so research is exciting. I mean, this is what pharma and life science companies do. They find new drugs. It's a shiny object. And scientists like to make new things, but creative people can play a role in other areas. So what does innovation outside of R&D look like? I had a conversation that will come up on this podcast in a couple of weeks. Um, I think next week, actually, with Erasmus Holm from MSD. Do you know him? Um, not yeah, in your Erasmus head. is a, a very good friend of mine, um, someone who genuinely does try to look outside the boundaries. And that is, of course, what we need a lot more of. And in answer to your question, what does innovation outside R&D look like? I would argue there is no innovation outside R&D in our industry right now. Uh, I would argue that R&D is the engine, the innovator, and the source of most goodness within our industry. And you have a scientific background. You'll know that 
good innovation requires good science and good science requires experimentation. It requires being able to suspend our own conjecture, our own beliefs, and to be very uh, proper in how we go about testing for whether or not something is right or wrong. And um, we don't do that outside R&D. And it's a massive shame because science is exp improving exponentially. The wonder of science is incredible. It's, it's astounding what is possible within the lab these days. And there's obviously a lot of sources you can go to to, to learn about that. Uh, and I think of that kind of exponential improvement of science as being a curve on a graph, um, which is, uh, you know, you can imagine another curve underneath it, which is the science that actually reaches the patient. And that's a much gentler uh, curve, shall we say. It's a, it's a much lower, much lower down. And um, that sounds very academic, but if you think about it, the, the, the gap between these two curves is, is people we could have cured but didn't i.e. people who died that we could have saved in many cases, right? Or people who we could have cured, but we, we left. And that is, you know, you don't see the bodies lying in the street, but that's a very stark reminder of how our job, I think, is to try and close the gap between those two curves, to get the science as pure as it is possible, possibly able to do uh, in the lab to the patient. And obviously there are many very important things that provide that inertia between the two, you know, regulation, and testing being two of the biggest. Um, but we're also guilty of not experimenting and not finding out what the best way to get these medicines or solutions to people actually is in that experimental way. Ironically, we fear it because of, you know, life and death. We fear it because of what we do in our industry. We fear the word, you know, experimenting, even though that's what we do in the lab even though ultimately that's almost what a clinical trial is. Um, so um, I think that the closer those outside R&D can get to a scientific mindset, the better. They don't have to consider themselves scientists. They can still consider themselves marketers or whatever they like to be, but they have to be um, far more experimental and deliberate. And of course, that means measuring things, trying new things and measuring them. And at the moment, so many of ideas, our ideas, they, they stay on a flip chart or a PowerPoint. They don't come into the, the world and they don't get put in front of patients. Patients get asked, but the problem is that of any customer in any industry, they're unable to uh, know exactly what they want. You know, there are famous tech entrepreneurs, again, that, that frequently cite how uh, you know, customers don't know what they want all the way back since Henry Ford. And, you know, read Clay Christensen and the Innovator's Dilemma, and this will, will give you a lot more reasons why customers are unable to do much more than see beyond the end of their nose. It's what creates short-term incremental innovation, and it's what creates giant industry disasters such as Kodak and, you know, Blockbuster, where they failed to keep up with their um, competitors. People don't, don't consider alternatives seriously. And uh, before it's too late, they can they can be overshot. Now, pharma kind of thinks of itself as insulated, protected. No one else can do drug discovery. That may well be true, but um, you know, it's not. It, it, even though you hear stories of, of of technology companies starting to sort of make forays into the world of drug development, it's not going to happen on a mainstream level anytime soon. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a duty towards the patient to be more experimental in order to get those lines. I even think there's a possibility where the science from the lab 
and the, the the ability for us to to um meet the patient's expectation that line can actually be higher than the science from the lab if you if you think about it there are so many solutions that could exist outside the lab that could make a patient's um experience better than just the medicine alone um so i don't think we need to um limit ourselves anymore those are the things i'm interested in so um going back to what erasmus and i talked about he he talked about digital transformation and i finally the light bulb went on for me um it in that conversation it came to me that digital transformation isn't just interacting with people in a digital medium it's changing not just how we do things but the things that we actually do that that yeah. can impact a patient so um Along that lines, what are some of those things? Because I, as you mentioned, a patient can't imagine all the things that are possible that might be going on yeah. in the lab or at a life science company that could improve their experience. They just know what their day looks like today. Exactly. Give us an example <laughs> of something that might surprise them and go, oh, I didn't know I could have that. Yeah. Well, let me give you a very quick example. Everyone's familiar with 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 one ones that have existed in the past. I mean, can you imagine an offline version of Facebook, an offline version of Uber, an offline version of Snapchat, or, or any of these kind of tech giants that exist today? It's very hard to imagine it. So, by definition, these companies that dominate our landscape today have created new business models. They've created new. We got to a threshold where enough people got online. Enough people got fast enough internet or mobile enough internet that a new business model became possible. That's what the pandemic has just done. It's provided a new threshold where we have now, you know, learned some things. For example, we can all work from home and that provides a new threshold for opportunity. So exactly as you just said with Erasmus, digital transformation is not about just turning what you did offline into online. That would be uh, a failure of potential. Um, I think that it would be, uh, I think we have to think like those, those 2.0 entrepreneurs, you know, and the, the new solutions are being made in garages all around the world. And, you know, whether we can see them or not, they are being built and they will, some of them will become dominant in the future. So, um, that's one thing. The second thing is we have to actually build the ideas that we come up with. I talked about how they often end, stay on flip charts. I like to see, I, I'm, an, I'm an admirer of what the automotive industry has done. They build concept cars. They don't just leave it sitting on a flip chart. They actually spend often millions creating their, their visions. Why? You know, you look at these things, they are absurd in so many cases. You can't even imagine how they drive uh, sometimes. Um, yet they build them and they make them drivable. And why is that? And I think it's because... Two things. I think it it provides that visceral audience feedback. Customers don't know what they want. They can't necessarily tell you right now. You know, they'll just imagine that faster horse, as we all we all hear about. But when they're given something to actually react on, you know, when that thing's built, when it's coming to reality, that's where you get learning. That's where you get true learning and true reaction and true testing and true understanding. Therefore. Um, so we have to be um, not just experimental, but willing to build our experiments. The other thing that that concept card does <laughs> is it kind of makes the industry a bit cooler, right? You know, some of these things look amazing. And um, health, 
I know people might, you know, shout at me if I say that health should be cool and that maybe it shouldn't, but it should certainly be something we get more passionate about. I often argue, you know, marketers are working in the most emotive industry of all, yet somehow manage to make the most bland advertising materials of all as well. Like Elon Musk can get people excited about batteries for crying out loud. We should be able to get people excited about health. Um, so, but we just don't think about it in an imaginative way. So I would like to create a new relationship with not just HCPs, but, but patients as well by opening their eyes as to what is possible, what the future could look like and becoming better storytellers in our industry. And then come to the third thing, which is an actual example. And this is where I always break down because, you know, people ask me about this, you know, Paul, have you seen examples in our industry? of where this is being done. And, you know, I look, I look all the time and I see so few. I do, honestly, you know, I spend, have, I've spent 20 years in this industry, but I get my inspiration from outside it, I'm afraid to say. Um, there are very few examples and even the examples I could think of are halfway to being real solutions. Um, and, um, you know, so I don't even want to talk about them <laughs> because, because they're not, they're not examples of where this is done. Of course, what I do see is attitudes emerging. You know, I see people creating awards within their companies, which um, celebrate kind of boldness and daring as opposed to necessarily the outcome and the result, um, which I, which I like because, because it encourages people to try, you know, I see people creating and forgive my language here, uh, <laughs> fuck up events, which are popular in startup where you, where you stand on a stage and talk about your failures and, you know, make sure you're not afraid of making those failures. You, you, you know, senior leaders talk about their failures to illustrate that it is actually possible to survive in your career <laughs> despite these failures. And of course, we all know the worst situation, which is that people spend months, even years building these campaigns, these websites, these apps, and then who uses them? Nobody. This is abominable. I, I just don't think that we should ever allow that to happen if we have a more of a test and see kind of culture, we, you know, rather than spending months and years building something only to discover it's not popular. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of examples of poor work. There's very few of real within our industry, I'm afraid to say. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I do like, I'm trying to imagine how we get people excited about health because you either feel like, you know, it's the leaky roof thing. Like when it's not raining, you're not worried about it. And then when it does come, it's a little more stressful than something to get excited about. But so there's, mm. I love, first of all, the idea of giving out awards for boldness and um, even acknowledging failures, which I mean, every successful person's had massive failures. And, um, and then a way to get people excited at the moment, you know, building something that that's testable and get getting people excited about what health could look like um, in the future. Hmm. I think um, I think you'd be surprised by what you can do. I think that if you take off the sort of normal lens of what's appropriate, shall we say, we we you can almost dream a little. Take off the budget constraint and see what you could come up with. Take off the compliance restraint and see what right. you could come up with. Take, you know, not not permanently. I'm not saying that I advocate you release uh, solutions that are not compliant, obviously. But in order to come up with these ideas, just take off. You know, we do it when we dream. All of us do it every night. 
we dream. We wake up in the morning and we think, what the hell was that <laughs> that I just dreamt about? But, you know, we do it. And, you know, unfortunately, we've, we discover in the morning that we cannot fly, but we've just spent the last few hours imagining a world where we could. And that's almost something we want to embrace as opposed to, you know, push away. And even just talking about it, like, for example, you know, it doesn't even have to be that far away from reality. Gen Z, Generation Z, um, speak a different language from, from those of us who are a little older. Um, they use different tools. They live in the metaverse, an online world already. Um, they, 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 they have a different code. And this is a group that is, you know, according to the official boundary lines, this is a group that's now 24, 25 years old. They are becoming our customer. What does that look like? You know, what does the version of the therapy that you work in work, look like in a Gen Z world? Now, whether you build a solution, build an idea, build whatever it is that you think could work or not, you can still tell the story. You can still think of the possibilities. You can still come up with the ideas. Now, which HCP, which patient would not be interested in a vision of what, you know, lung cancer, what dermatology looks like in a Gen Z world. It's very, very interesting to kind of imagine what's possible. So why can't we tell these stories? Why can't we open people's eyes? Why do we always have to talk about the past and the present, which is all we ever talk about in our industry? And why can't we talk about the future? You know, just because we're public companies in many cases does not stop us talking about what is possible. Um, and um, there is uh, a group of people called medical affairs in most pharma organizations, certainly, um, who aren't obsessed with short-term commercial numbers, uh, which of course allows them a bit more freedom to prioritize learning of the type that I described earlier. So I think that every company has a group within it that can be experimental, can talk even off-label, can um, express people in uh, insights in this way and can get us to all dream and be inspired in this industry. So I believe that in the right environment, we can all be quite creative here and we can come up with this stuff. I really believe that. I like it. Listener, because you're here, you know the power of audio to create a connection between an individual and a brand. If you've been thinking about adding audio content to your marketing mix for 2023, but worry that an ongoing series is more than you're ready to take on, there are other options to tell your story and generate that connection. If you're curious about what that would look like, I'll put a link to my Calendly in the show notes. We can have a short 15-minute conversation to see what might work for you. So let's shift gears and go back to that idea of Agile. Um, I didn't really understand it before I read your post because it seemed like a business buzzword. And since I don't have 100 people around me, <laughs> it, you know, I haven't had to do a workshop. But... Um, <laughs> Let's. So I take it from your post, it's really more fair to call it a system of testing and learning. Like, how do we improve by doing experiments yeah. and figuring out the results? So how do you see, um, you know, new 
as based in your post, describe how you see new innovations being tested and what sure. needs to happen to do it better. The first thing is the willingness. Most of our leaders consider themselves to be a bit like Julius Caesar, right? They, they, they hold their thumb up and they give it a, a yes or a no based on their previous experience or just what they're feeling like that day, whether or not to survive or kill a project, right? So that is, that is the traditional system. And it makes sense, you know, people have spent years learning. We're in the age of the non-expert though. None of us know, as I said before, what is gonna work and what isn't. It's uncertain, but also you've got Gen Z speaking another language. Frankly, any of us understanding why that pop song or why that game is popular is beyond us, right? We're never gonna know. So let the market decide. Leadership need to basically have the attitude of not being the ones to decide, but to create that culture and that process uh, or system, should I say, which enables market, quick market exposure so that that can be the determinant of success or failure. Um, there's another thing that you need to do at the beginning, um, apart from have that willingness, and that is rather boring sounding. It's create the right measurement the right KPI, whatever word you want to use. Uh, and this is where startups excel. Startups have to attract uh, investor money, but they often have no revenue. They don't even have a product yet in many cases, um, but they have to prove somehow that they are investable. When they do get a dollar, they can turn it into two or three or four. So what they do is they create a metric which illustrates that they can improve the conversion rate or the ROI or the, the, the follow through or the loyalty rate or something, you know, one of these types of metrics from the very outset. They can't afford to hire the best person in the industry to do the most experience. That's what pharma does. Pharma hires the best people and then says, go do this interesting thing. Uh, and then everyone sort of sucks up to that person. And there's no real accountability within the organization because everyone's trying to look good in front of their boss because this, this illustrious person is, is heading up the organization that, that's doing it. Whereas at startup, you have to create that accountability from the outset, right? You have to create that metric. And that's why often small companies out-innovate larger ones because they don't have that kind of vanity metric culture. Uh, and if you read a, a book recommendation of mine is The Lean Startup by uh, Eric Ries that teaches you a lot, one of which is something called innovation accounting. Okay, I told you this was boring. Accounting, but accounting for the learning. Imagine we accounted for learning in the same way that we account for dollars. Imagine we distributed learning in the same way that we distribute dollars, right? We could have uh, a system set up to make sure that that learning is never forgotten in the same way that dollars aren't. And... Um, it would, you know, travel throughout the organization and inform uh, what we do. So create that learning metric, that learning accountability from the outset, and then be, of course, quite deliberate in what you go out and do, right? Don't just set up a new pilot because someone interesting walked in the door and said, I've got a new machine that will, <laughs> you know, solve your, all, your, all your problems, a new, a new elixir or something. Um, be deliberate because you determine what metrics are important and then go out there and then brainstorm, right? Do all of the, the things that you normally do. But of course, you're going to aim to get whatever it is you brainstorm out to market exposure. And sometimes that involves a little bit of cheating. Uh, one example I thought of is um, one company tried to create a, a chatbot, um, but it was, it was going to take years to set this thing up because 
the area that it was being pushed in was very complex and it was going to take a long time to train the robot to be able to act as a chatbot in front of a doctor and to be able to speak the same language as the doctor. So in most pharma companies, this would be a, a process that would be kind of evaluated. Maybe there'd be some market research and there would be a three-year commitment to do this before it was saw the light of day. Or the agile method would be to fake it to, you know, fake it in a way. And I'm not talking Theranos style faking. I'm talking about basically approximating the real thing in order to determine if it could work and then build it. So create the chatbot by using humans behind the computer. You know, it's a fake chatbot. It's actually got a bunch of humans um, answering the questions to begin with. But you can put that in front of the customer with an interface within a week, right? You can get that test and you can find out the answer to the most important question. Is it good? Do people want it? Do people use it? <laughs> right. And you can find out the answer to those questions before you invest in three years of pain. And, you know, it sounds so obvious when you say it like this, but it happens so rarely in our industry. So fake it till you find ways of approximating the key question that, that, that you need to ask, get that question answered before you then invest and then invest in a kind of invest like startups do, you know, they have rounds of investing series, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, we, we have an annual budget system of investing, which is far more inefficient and far more ineffective, you know. Ensure that the projects which hit certain learning milestones are the ones that get funded and get to the next round. That's innovating and that's funding and developing things according to what should happen, not just what happened last year or the year before. That's a great example, not only for, you know, a, a great way to do it, but also sort of setting the standard. You, you see what's possible. Let's say the HCPs like it. But now you have a, sort of a set of requirements. Now we have to train the bot to do exactly what we found was successful with humans. Yeah, exactly. And we'll know a lot more about what to train the bot on. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So, yeah. But don't rely on market research as well. Don't rely on what the customer will say. By all means, go out and ask the customer, but don't rely on it. <laughs> I had a note, which did not make it into my list of questions, which was about innovation accounting, because I was curious. I saw that you had mentioned that somewhere, yeah. and I didn't know what it meant. Now I do. Thank you for bringing that <laughs> up. Talk about, you know, we, ha we can put these systems in place, Agile and doing concept cars, but talk about the mindset that's necessary in an organization to actually make this stuff happen, because that's really, it's part of the culture, right? Yeah, well, actually, maybe it's because you just mentioned his name, but the story um, that comes to mind is one that I actually told um, Erasmus when I spoke at one of his uh, uh, company meetings last year. Uh, and it's, um, uh, this is, you know, perhaps the first and last time you're going to hear a, a use case on, on this front, but I'm going to talk about a terrorist incident. And it took place just before the pandemic here in London, not that far away from where I'm talking to you right now. Um, and why on earth am I talking about terrorism? Well, I shall explain. Um, there was a, a man um, who um, was in a crowded uh, room. In a, there was like a, a big meeting, a conference taking place in, in, in a building in London. Uh, and he pulled out of a rucksack a very large knife and unfortunately managed to stab and kill two people in that, in that room. But 
He was then chased out of the room and chased out onto the street and chased down London Bridge, um, which is where it uh, happened. And um, armed police were called and they managed to intercept the situation and they shot the man dead before he was able to do any further harm. And why am I telling this story? It's because of two things. Firstly, this man was wearing a bomb, a suicide vest. So anyone close to him assumed that they were going to end their lives. They would just be blown up, right? So that's part of the reason why he was chased out onto the street. But interestingly, the people who chased him out onto the street engaged in basically hand-to-hand combat. No, None of them had any weapons on them. One of them grabbed a fire extinguisher. The other one grabbed... It was a narwhal tusk, a whale tusk, some kind of ornamental thing that was like on the wall of this kind of old-fashioned building, I guess, um, yeah, with a big pointy end to it. And there's a photograph of them on the bridge. Um, and why do I tell this story? It's because there are some of us in life who run towards a fire. They run towards that burning building. They run towards danger. Um, because they can't help themselves. And they do so at without thinking about their own personal risk. You know, if your friends and your family would not want you to do that, let's be let's be sure about that. They would want you to hang well back, let the professionals do deal with it, right? But some people run towards that. Some people are willing basically to compromise their safety. And that's unlikely actually to be the leaders of our organizations. It's unlikely to be the most senior people within our companies. And what these senior people have to do is recognize that they are not that person. They are not the one running into the burning building, but there probably is someone within the organization that is. You know, they might have been derided in the past as the weirdo, the one with all the crazy ideas, whatever they might be. But that person, I would say, needs to be listened to more than ever before because they're the ones that are willing to unlearn, to go down the hill, to de-optimize. I spoke earlier about how we've optimized to a world that we thought we knew, but now we want to be over on an another peak, another peak of, you know, a different mountain that we want to be on. We can't just step from one mountain to another in a single step. We have to go down that valley and unlearn uh, and be willing to make a fool of ourselves sometimes in, in that process. So that is the attitude I would love to see us have. It's not necessarily one of being courageous ourselves. It's being one of being tolerant of courageousness and being tolerant of those willing to go against the grain uh, and, and perhaps to learn something from it. One of Clay Christensen's uh, quotes, my favorite quote probably is, uh, at first, new ideas look like a toy, right? We don't take them seriously, you know? Netflix wasn't taken seriously because Blockbuster earned 20% of its revenue from late fees, right? Netflix doesn't <laughs> earn any late fees, so of course it's a stupid business model, right? So it seems so laughable now, but you can also kind of imagine it at the time, <laughs> So yeah. be willing to to embrace new, being willing to try new things, let the market decide because you cannot, you are not experienced enough. You never will be to know what the new generation wants. I love that because uh, not only is this podcast about marketing, it's also um, occasionally about leadership. And that's just a great example where uh, <clears throat> obviously you don't want a staff full of those people, but yeah. it's important to recognize the ones you have and uh, pay attention to them. And I mean, it's sort of a human experiment in the sense that there's your, that's your person that's thinking. Of. That is exactly the right phrase, a human experiment. I said at the beginning of this, we need to be more scientists. Scientists do experiments and, you know, we work in the human business. So, you know, 
that's that's exactly what we need. Paul Sims, this has been a treat talking to you today. I'm going to put a link to that post on agility um, in the show notes, and then people can find you on LinkedIn through that, as well as a link to Impatient Health, where I definitely suggest people check out the blog because it got some. It's well written and very provocative. Uh, very kind of you. To say so, especially English was my worst subject at school. So the idea that you, I will be praised for my writing is surprising and humbling. So thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> my pleasure. The whole idea of can we make health cool is what has me spinning. Not cool for its own sake, but attractive in a way that leads to healthier lives across the population. That's the business we're in. Insurance minimizes the downside risk if we're lucky enough to have it. What can life science companies do to make a positive contribution to the other side of the ledger, even in advance of developing new therapies and treatments? As always, I appreciate that you share this time with me. If you enjoy the podcast, your colleagues would likely appreciate it if you share the podcast with them. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another fun episode. Till then, bye-bye.